Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. I want to thank you all for being here to discuss a critical issue for our country's future. Winning the race to be the world's leading provider of 5G, we cannot allow any other country to outcompete the United States in this powerful industry of the future. The race to 5G is a race America must win, and it's it's a race that we will win. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley. I'm Arjun Karpal in Guangzhou, China. And I'm Elizabeth Schulze in London. You just heard from President Trump talking about 5G and 5G being a race that America must win. You've probably heard the term 5G around a lot lately, and so we thought that in this episode of Beyond the Valley, we could help understand what it is and why it's become one of the most political pieces of technology in recent times. Now, we've been using 3G and now 4G on our smartphones and mobile devices, and that really revolutionized the way we use our smartphones. The promise of 5G is even faster speeds, but it's not just for consumer applications. It's going to be helping to support a whole bunch of new technologies that are going to be using huge amounts of data. Some of those, for example, are like driverless cars or even virtual reality. In order to support all of that data, we are starting to see 5G networks finally being rolled out in various countries like the US and China and South Korea. Telecom operators are the companies that provide the infrastructure for these new networks, and they're starting to implement that around the world. So I got the views of Vinod Nair, an expert on the topic. He's a partner at technology, media, and telecom advisory firm Delta Partners, and asked him how 5G differs from 4G and what we can expect from the technology. 5G is essentially quite a significant step up from what we know as 4G today. Um, There's a bunch of differences, but in very simple language, it is significantly faster speeds. It's not just a small increment, but it's significantly faster speeds. It's also what we call low latency. Uh, And low latency essentially is the ability to, to have very minimal delay because of the underlying wireless network itself or the underlying network itself. Um... 5G is also very efficient in the sense that for a given amount of spectrum, you can do a lot more with it. Um, So if you're a network operator, it's a more efficient use of what's a scarce resource, which is spectrum. So think of this as essentially from a consumer perspective, it's a lot more bandwidth, high speeds, and it's low latency. And what are the advantages versus 4G? So I think 4G itself was quite an evolution over 3G and then 2G. Data really started with 3G, but those of us who remember the early days of 3G, it was never an easy, great experience. And 4G has made it a lot more easier. I think we take for granted today that we can watch streaming video, we can do certain things which, you know, on a 4G network look pretty decent. 5G, I think, just takes that up a significant level, but it also allows you to do some things which you can't do today. So... You know, there are applications, both consumer and industrial applications, where the bandwidth requirements are higher than what 4G is truly comfortable with. This would be, you know, you will hear talk about augmented reality or virtual reality applications in high definition. You'll hear about gaming, which is on the consumer side. But those require high bandwidth and and speeds, which I think 5G will 
address quite easily. You know, we talk about 4K streaming and ultra high definition video. You could do some of it on 4G networks today, but when you have a large base of users who are all doing it simultaneously, this is where 5G kicks in from a consumer perspective. I think from an industrial applications perspective, it's the low latency that truly makes a difference. Um, you know, we talk about the world moving towards autonomous vehicles, drones, lots of function uh, applications where you can't have a lag or a delay on the network because you're essentially in something that's mission critical or something that can you know, effectively end up causing an accident. Some interesting cases are things like um, uh, at the Mobile World Congress, there was a demo or demonstration of remote surgery, again, where latency is a critical aspect to it. Those are the, the sort of the use cases on which I think 5G is being, is being developed. But from a typical consumer, what you should expect is certainly faster video, better quality video, better quality gaming, and a combination of augmented and virtual reality applications which feel a lot more real and immersive. And why is it that 5G is seen as so critical? Is it because of this improved capability that means it can support, I guess, to some extent, new technologies? Driverless cars, for example, is one of the, the technologies that has been flagged up as being able to benefit from 5G. Is that why it's seen so, so critical? Is Because more than 4G, it's going to be supporting some very key pieces of infrastructure in countries. Correct. And I think from a, if you take a consumer perspective, versus what I call the more enterprise applications. It's on the enterprise side where truly there is a difference because you're enabling, you know, very, very close to real-time or real-time decision-making based on a very, very fast network. Driverless cars is one element of that, but any sort of mission-critical application in an industrial context, which requires that very sort of, you know, millisecond sort of uh, response times can be enabled with 5G. You won't do that on 4G today. The 4G networks just do not have that minimum required latency issues to, to serve those applications. So, so I think the, the bigger sort of leap forward, I, if I would say, is on the enterprise side. I think on the consumer side, look, we're all hungry for more data. We're always looking for the next version of video. So there's going to be some clear benefits for consumers, but I think you'll see radical shifts on the enterprise side. So you heard there that 5G is seen as so critical because it's essentially going to be supporting some pretty key infrastructure. And that's why President Trump has talked about this being a race that America must win. There's one country that Trump has singled out in this race, and that's China. And there's one Chinese company that's become in the middle of all of these tensions between the U.S. and China, and that's Huawei. Huawei is a massive Chinese tech company. It's the world's largest provider of telecommunications equipment, but it's essentially been absent from the U.S. market for several years. And part of the reason for that is that the U.S. government called Huawei a national security threat in 2012 and has only stepped up its criticism of the company in recent times. That's right, Elizabeth. And that's because the context has changed to some extent from 2012. The U.S. and China are locked in an ongoing trade war. Uh, and we heard, of course, as you mentioned, President Trump say that it wants to win the race for 5G. And that's really why 5G has become so politicized. The U.S. 
uh, to some extent, it's trying to slow down the progress of China. And to do that, it's seen Huawei as a key, key target. If it can stop Huawei from uh, being part of 5G networks in certain countries, then it can potentially stop the advances of China. So that's the US's thinking. You had a very interesting conversation recently on that, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I spoke with Nigel Inkster, who worked in British national intelligence for decades. And one of the key points here is that this isn't the first time that technology has kind of been at the heart of diplomatic relations between countries, but we're really seeing 5G as a high stakes game between the US and China right now. Here's what Nigel told me. So, you know, China's objective is to be a kind of global standard setter in these new technologies. They make no secret about this fact. It's, you know, right out there. Um, And, of course, this raises all kinds of uh, strategic questions. If we look back to the 19th century, um, the world was wired for telegraphy by the British through cable and wireless. And that the fact that basically the world's telegraphic traffic all transited the UK gave us a significant strategic advantage. It led to things like the Zimmerman telegram, the means whereby the United States was brought into World War I, et cetera, et cetera. If we look at what happened in the 20th century with uh, um, internet communications for a considerable period of time, the vast majority of internet communication went via either the United States or the UK, thereby, again, creating an enormous strategic advantage in controlling and being able to access these communications. Now China's trying to kind of reset the balance and uh, Huawei, um, uh, one of the things it's doing is laying lots of cable uh, around the world to redress that balance and acquire advantage. So it's quite clear what China wants to do here. They want to be the world leader in these technologies. Now, you know, the US response to this, I think is, you know, I, have, I hate to say this, but I think it's true. I think they've been rather leaden footed in the way that they, they, they've responded. Firstly, um, by lacking an explicit government articulated strategy in relation to 5G, which is only now really starting to, to, to emerge, um, but also in arguing that, you know, or, or shaping the, the, the challenge from China and from Huawei solely as an espionage issue. It is, of course, about espionage, but it's about much more than that, and a failure adequately to articulate this wider perspective um, is, I think, uh, damaging the U.S. ability to present a meaningful case to the rest of the world. The other thing, of course, in this is there is undoubtedly an element of protectionism at work here. The United States of America is very uncomfortable with the idea that they should not be the dominant country Um, in respect of all advanced technologies. And if you talk to the U.S. Congress, they regard it as an article of faith that this should be the case. You know, they're not prepared to accept that the United States should be, you know, second to anyone. Arjun, you've been covering this story very closely. What is it exactly that governments are worried about when it comes to Huawei? The main concern, or so they say, is espionage. Many governments, particularly the U.S., have said that Huawei could be a national security risk because its equipment could be used by the Chinese government to carry out 
espionage and spying on US citizens. These are claims, of course, Huawei has repeatedly denied. Now, Australia is one country that has barred uh, Huawei from participating in certain 5G projects. Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister of Australia, was the person behind that decision. Here's what he had to say about his thinking behind banning Huawei. The, the decision we took was really one based on hedging against future risks. I mean, the reality is the nature of the 5G network is that you cannot any longer reasonably distinguish between the core and the radio access network. So intelligence processing, because of virtualization, is distributed right through the network. It's uh, virtualization means it is largely a software-enabled network. So that is, you know, that's happening in every area of technology. Now, the the company, the entity that provides that, that maintains it, that has constant access to it, has enormous capability, if it chose to do so, to act adversely to your interests. So. No one is suggesting that Huawei would do that, certainly not me. I have great admiration for the, country, for the company. But capability takes a long time to put in place. Intent can change in a heartbeat. So you've got to hedge and take into account the risk that intent can change in the years ahead. Remember, a threat is a combination of capability and intent. So in areas of national security, we're naturally cautious, prudent and hedging. So I think there's a key nuance to make here, which is that Turnbull didn't say specifically that Huawei is guilty of anything. He just talked about the risk there. And the problem is that there is a risk because of some of the national intelligence laws that exist in China. I know, Arjun, you can speak about that since you live there now. That's right. There's a couple of pieces of legislation which appear to suggest that Chinese companies must comply with the Chinese government if they came knocking on the door saying, hey, give us some data. And that seems to be where a lot of the concern has stemmed from. And I wanted to get Nigel Ingster's take on this from a national security perspective. Here's what he had to say on those laws. Within China, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that there is no such thing as a private sector in the way that we in the West understand it. At the end of the day, uh, Xi Jinping said in his uh, speech to the 19th Party Congress, North, South, East, West, the party controls everything. Uh, now, you know, he didn't then go on to say, but that doesn't apply to Huawei. Um, so um, the, the, the simple fact is that irrespective of what the laws on espionage or you know, anything else say, the actual reality is that in China, if the party wants something, they're going to get it. Okay, so we've heard about these security concerns. Arjun, what's Huawei's response to all of this? Look, Huawei has repeatedly denied that it would ever put its customers' data at risk. It has said that it would never spy on behalf of the government because doing that would basically risk losing all of its customers and ultimately put it out of business. So the company argues, why would it do that? I heard Inkster um, say there that Huawei has been caught in this US-China trade war to some extent. So... I had a chance actually to catch up with Ren Zhengfei. He is the founder and CEO of Huawei, a very mysterious figure um, and has pretty been pretty quiet actually when it comes to media. But in the past few months, he's been speaking uh, a lot more publicly. So I had a chance to sit down with him one on one and I asked him if he felt that Huawei was a pawn in this trade dispute between China and the US. 
If the U.S. thinks we can be used as a pawn, I'd say they probably have the wrong person. We cannot help solve the China-U.S. trade disputes because we don't really sell in the U.S. and have no influence on China-U.S. relations. So Huawei has really been dragging this battle between the U.S. and China to some extent against its will. But even though uh, Ren Zhengfei doesn't feel like Huawei can influence the trade talks in any way, President Donald Trump in the past has said that Huawei could form part of some broader U.S.-China trade deal. That's, of course, we are, are waiting to see the outcome of that. Arjun, it's a really interesting kind of back and forth that we're hearing here. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the other highlights from your interview with the Huawei founder. Yeah, what struck me, actually, Elizabeth, about Mr. Ren was how strong his comments were against the U.S. He said the fact that the U.S. was talking so much about Huawei had given it some free advertising, which had helped it get some customers. He also said that it shows that the U.S. is scared of Huawei. And Mr. Ren, you've said in the past that the U.S. government hasn't seen Huawei's technology, hasn't seen Huawei's source code. Would you invite Donald Trump and his administration to your campus here in Shenzhen to let them see the technology that you have to put their, their fears at rest? They are more than welcome to come and visit us at Shenzhen. So the message from Mr. Ren there is he isn't taking this line down. He is staying resolute and still feels that Huawei can be successful in the 5G era. It doesn't seem like this debate between the U.S. and China and Huawei is going to be settled. And what we're seeing is that Europe has sort of been stuck in the middle. You know, U.S. officials have urged their European allies not to use Huawei equipment in building out their 5G networks. But so far, some countries have sort of ignored those urgings from the U.S. Germany has decided it won't specifically ban Huawei. The U.K. is currently weighing the security risks of Huawei. And we're seeing this in a lot of other countries here, too. So it seems like the future of this debate is whether other countries will be sort of convinced by the U.S. message or if they will turn to the Huawei technology on their own instead. Absolutely right, Elizabeth. This is something that's going to be continuing over the next few months, no doubt. But let's turn our attention as well now to the actual rollout of 5G networks. We've seen the South South Korea, U.S. and, and China all starting to roll out these 5G networks. Smartphone makers like Samsung and Huawei are bringing out 5G smartphones, but there is still so much hype around this technology and many stumbling blocks. These are some of the big ones, according to Vinod Nair from Delta Partners. So I think there are multiple stumbling blocks. I think the biggest one and probably the the one that's impacting many countries is there's still some um, uncertainty around spectrum, as in not all governments and regulators have actually uh, had spectrum put aside for 5G. They've not run through a process of allocating that spectrum to, to, to the network. So spectrum is probably one of the biggest challenges. Um, you know, there are roughly sort of two bands. You will hear about spectrum in the sort of three to six, gigabyte, six gigahertz band and then spectrum going up to the 24 to 35, 40 gigahertz bands as well. The, the low band, the, the 3.5 gigahertz sort of spectrum band often is, is, uh, is not readily available in some markets to be licensed out immediately. And there's been some concern around delays on spectrum allocation actually impacting the speed of rollout. So spectrum is probably the biggest concern. The second concern is 5G requires a fair bit of investment in terms of building networks. Um, the more you go to higher spectrum bands, the more dense your network needs to be. 
because that's a simple trade-off. That's why you get the high bandwidth because you have a more dense network. That requires capital. And we know for sure that some markets and some telecom operators are struggling to justify putting in additional capex into 5G when they're still recouping the investments on 4G. So I think that's linked to the fact that there, in, there aren't as many very clear revenue models associated with 5G. So there are things you could do on 4G. So the question is, why would you invest all that money on 5G if you were going to get the same revenues as 4G? So the revenue side of the model is not as clear, which makes the investment from a CAPEX perspective challenging. The last bit is, again, something around handsets, but that usually addresses itself. So the first set of 5G handsets have become available. They are expensive, so you'd wait for price points to come down before more people can afford them. So I felt like we, we got through a lot there, but there's still so much to talk about. But I hope it's given uh, you listeners out there some insight into the state of 5G right now. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts, like if you're ready to buy a 5G smartphone, let us know. I am on Twitter at eshulzy9. And I'm on Twitter at Arjun Karpal. Don't forget to sign up to our Beyond the Valley newsletter online too at cnbc.com forward slash beyond the valley. That's it for another episode of Beyond the Valley. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Valley.